0: Book Three, Chapters One to Four of De Monarchia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary J. De Monarchia by Dante Alighieri. Translated by Aurelia Henry Reinhardt. Book Three Whether the Authority of the Roman Monarch Derives from God Immediately or from Some Vicar of God. Chapters One through Four. Chapter One. INTRODUCTION He has shut the lion's mouth, and they have not hurt me, inasmuch as before him righteousness was found in me. In beginning this work I propose to investigate three questions as far as the subject matter would allow. For the first two questions this has been done satisfactorily in the foregoing books, I believe. We must now consider the third, the truth of which may, however, be a cause of indignation against me, since it cannot be brought forth without causing certain men to blush." but since truth from her immutable throne demands it and solomon entering his forest of proverbs and marking out his own conduct entreats that we meditate upon truth and abhor wickedness and our teacher of morals the philosopher admonishes us to sacrifice whatever is most precious for truth's sake therefore gaining assurance from the works of daniel wherein the power of god is shown as a shield for the defenders of truth and putting on the breastplate of faith according to the admonition of paul in the warmth of that coal taken from the heavenly altar by one of the seraphim and touched to the lips of isaiah i will engage in the present conflict and by the arm of him who with his blood liberated us from the power of darkness i will cast the ungodly and the liar from the arena while the world looks on wherefore should i fear when the spirit co-eternal with the father and son says by the mouth of david the righteous shall be an everlasting remembrance he shall not be afraid of evil tidings the question pending investigation then concerns two great luminaries the Roman pontiff, and the Roman prince. And the pointed issue is whether the authority of the Roman monarch, who, as proved in the second book, is rightful monarch of the world, derives from God directly, or from some vicar or minister of God, by whom I mean the successor of Peter, veritable keeper of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. CHAPTER two. GOD WILLS NOT THAT WHICH IS COUNTER TO THE INTENTION OF NATURE As in the previous questions, so in the present one we must assume some principle for informing the arguments which are to reveal the truth for of what avail is it to labour even in speaking truth if one have no basic principle in the principle is the sole root of the assumptions which are the mediums of proof let us set up then this indisputable truth that whatever is repugnant to the intention of nature is contrary to the will of god if this were not true its contrary would not be false that whatever is repugnant to the intention of nature is not contrary to the will of god and if this is not false, its consequences are not false. For in necessary consequences a false consequent is impossible without a false antecedent. But, not contrary to the will of, means one of two things, to will or not to will, just as not to hate means either to love or not to love. For not to love does not mean to hate, neither does not to will mean to be contrary to the will of, as is self-evident. If these statements are not false, neither will it be false to assert that God wills what He does not will, than which no greater fallacy exists. I demonstrate as follows the verity of what has been said. That God wills an end for nature is manifest, otherwise the heavens would move to no purpose, which is not possible to claim. If God should will an obstruction to this end, He would also will an end for the obstruction, or He would will to no purpose. Now, the end of an obstruction is that the thing obstructed may exist no longer, So it follows that God wills the end of nature to exist no longer, when we have already said that He wills it to exist. But if God did not will the obstruction to the end, it would follow from His not willing it, that He cared nothing for the obstruction, whether it existed or not. Now he who cares nothing for the obstruction cares nothing for the end obstructed, and therefore has it not in his will, and what he has not in his will, he does not will. Hence, if the end of nature can be impeded, and it can, It necessarily follows that God does not will an end of nature, and follows further, as before, that God wills what He does not will. That principle is therefore most true from the contradictory of which results such an absurdity. CHAPTER three, Of the three classes of our opponents, and the too great authority, many ascribe to tradition. In entering on this third question, let us bear in mind that the truth of the first was made manifest in order to abolish ignorance rather than contention. But the investigation of the second had a reference alike to ignorance and contention. Indeed, we are ignorant of many things concerning which we do not contend. The geometrician does not know the square of the circle. But he does not contend about it. The theologian does not know the number of the angels. But he renders it no cause for quarrel. The Egyptian knows not of the civilization of Scythia. But does not, therefore, make the civilization a source of strife. Now the truth of the third question has to do with so keen a contention that— whereas ignorance generally causes the discord, here the discord causes ignorance. For it always happens to men who will things before rationally considering them, that, their desire being evil, they put behind them the light of reason. As blind men they are led about by their desire, and stubbornly deny their blindness. Whence it often occurs not only that falsehood has her own patrimony, but that many men going out from her boundaries run through strange camps, where, neither understanding nor being understood at all, they provoke some to wrath, some to disdain, and not a few to laughter. Three classes of men struggle hardest against the truth which we would establish. First, the chief pontiff, vicar of our Lord Jesus Christ, and successor to Peter, he to whom we should render not what is due to Christ, but what is due to Peter. He, perchance, in his zeal for the keys, together with some pastors of Christian flocks, and others moved solely, I believe, by their zeal for mother church, contradict the truth I am about to declare. They contradict it, perchance, from zeal, I repeat, not from pride. But others, in their inveterate cupidity, have quenched the light of reason, and call themselves sons of the Church, although they are of their father the devil. Not only do they arouse controversy in regard to this question, but, despising the very name of the most sacred Princehood, impudently deny the first principles of this and the previous questions. The third class, called decretalists, utterly ignorant and unregardful of theology and philosophy, depending entirely on the decretals, which, I grant, are deserving of veneration, and I presume trusting in the ultimate supremacy of these, derogate from the imperial power. Nor is it to be wondered at, for I have heard one of them aver and insolently maintain that ecclesiastical traditions are the foundation of faith. Let those dispel this error of thought from moral minds, whom the world doubts not to have believed in Christ, the Son of God, ere ecclesiastical traditions were— believed in him either to come or present, or having already suffered, in believing, hoped, and hoping burned with love, and burning with love, were made co-heirs with him. And that such mistaken thinkers may be wholly shut out from the present discussion, it must be observed that some of the Scriptures take precedence of the Church. Some are equivalent to the Church, and some subordinate to it. Those taking precedence of the Church are the Old and New Testaments, which, as the Prophet says, were commanded for ever, and to which the Church refers, in saying to the Bridegroom, Draw me after thee. Equivalent to the church, are those councils so worthy of reverence? And in the midst of which no believer doubts the presence of Christ. For we have, according to Matthew's testimony, the word spoken to his disciples at his ascension into heaven, Lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. In addition, there are the writings of the doctors, Augustine, and others, and whosoever doubts the aid of the Holy Spirit therein has never seen their fruits, or, if he has seen, has never tasted them. Subordinate to the church are the traditions called decretals, which, while they must be revered for their apostolic authority, must nevertheless be held unquestionably inferior to the fundamental scriptures, seeing that Christ rebuked the priests for not so doing. When they had inquired, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they had omitted the washing of hands. Christ answered, as Matthew testifies, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? Here the inferiority of tradition is clearly implied. If, as we believe, traditions of the Church are subordinate to the Church, authority necessarily accrues not to the Church through traditions, but to traditions through the Church, and I repeat, those who have faith in traditions alone are excluded from this discussion, for they who would hunt down this truth must start in their search from those writings whence the authority of the Church emanates. Others must likewise be excluded who, decked in the plumage of ravens, boast themselves white sheep of the master's flock in order to carry out their crimes these sons of impiety defile their mother banish their brethren and scorn judgments brought against them why should reason be sought in behalf of these whose passions prevent them from understanding our basic principle there remains then the controversy with those only who led by a certain zeal for their mother the church are blind to the truth we are seeking and with them confident in that reverence which a loyal and loving son owes to father and mother to christ and the church to the shepherd and all who profess the christian religion I enter in this book into combat for the preservation of truth. CHAPTER four, THE OPPONENT'S ARGUMENT ADDUCED FROM THE SUN AND MOON Those men to whom the entire subsequent discussion is directed assert that the authority of the Empire descends on the authority of the Church, just as the inferior artisan depends on the architect. They are drawn to this by diverse opposing arguments, some of which they take from Holy Scripture, and some from certain acts performed by the chief pontiff, and by the emperor himself, and they endeavor to make their conviction reasonable. For, first, they maintain that according to Genesis, God made two mighty luminaries, a greater and a less, the former to hold supremacy by day and the latter by night. These they interpret allegorically, to be the two rulers, spiritual and temporal. Whence they argue that as the lesser luminary, the moon, has no light but that gained from the sun, so the temporal ruler has no authority but that gained from the spiritual ruler. Let it be noted that for the refutation of this and their other arguments that, as the philosopher holds in his writings on sophistry, the destruction of an argument is the exposure of error. And because error can occur in both the matter and the form of the argument, a twofold fallacy is possible, that arising from a false assumption, and that from a failure to syllogize." The two objections brought by the philosopher against Parmenides and Melissus were they accept what is false and syllogize incorrectly. False, I use here with large significance, embracing the improbable, which in matters of probability becomes the false element. He who would destroy a conclusion where there is error in the form of the argument must show a failure to comply with the rules of syllogizing. Where the error is material, he must show that an assumption has been made either false in itself or false in relation to something else, absolute falsity may be destroyed by destroying the assumption, relative falsity by distinction of meanings. Granting this, let us observe, in order to comprehend more clearly the fallacy of this and other arguments, that with regard to mystical interpretation a twofold error may arise, either by seeking one where it is not, or by explaining it other than it ought to be. Of the first error, Augustine says, in The City of God, not all deeds recounted should be thought to have special significance because for the sake of significant things insignificant details are interwoven. The ploughshare by itself cuts the land into furrows, but that this may be accomplished the other parts of the plough are needed. Of the second error he speaks in his Christian doctrine, saying that the man who attempts to find in the scriptures other things than the writer's meaning is deceived as one who abandons a certain road only by a long detour to reach the goal whither the road led directly. And he adds, such a man should be shown that a habit of leaving his path may lead him into crossroads and tortuous ways. Then he gives the reason why this error should be avoided in the Scriptures, saying, Shake the authority of the divine writings, and you shake all faith. However, I believe that when such errors are due to ignorance they should be pardoned after correction has been carefully administered, just as he should be pardoned who is terrified at a supposed lion in the clouds. But when such errors are due to design— The erring one should be treated like tyrants who never apply public laws for the general welfare, but endeavor to turn them to individual profit. O unparalleled crime! Though committed but in dreams, of turning into evil the intention of the Eternal Spirit! Such a sin would not be against Moses or David or Job or Matthew or Paul, but against the Holy Spirit that speaketh in them. For although the writers of the Divine Word are many, the dictator of the Word is one, even God, who has deigned to make known his purpose to us through diverse pens from these prefatory remarks i proceed to refute the above assumption that the two luminaries of the world typify its two ruling powers the whole force of their argument lies in the interpretation but this we can prove indefensible in two ways first since these ruling powers are as it were accidents necessitated by man himself god would seem to have used a distorted order in creating first accidents and then the subject necessitating them it is absurd to speak thus of god but it is evident from the word that the two lights were created on the fourth day, and man on the sixth. Secondly, the two ruling powers exist as the directors of men towards certain ends, as will be shown further on. But had man remained in the state of innocence in which God made him, he would have required no such direction. These ruling powers are therefore remedies against the infirmity of sin. Since on the fourth day man not only was not a sinner, but was not even existent, the creation of a remedy would have been purposeless, which is contrary to divine goodness. Foolish, indeed, would be the physician who should make ready a plaster for the future abscess of a man not yet born. Therefore it cannot be asserted that God made the two ruling powers on the fourth day, and consequently the meaning of Moses cannot have been what it is supposed to be. Also, in order to be tolerant, we may refute this fallacy by distinction. Refutation by distinction deals more gently with an adversary, for it shows him to be not absolutely wrong, as does refutation by destruction. I say, then, that although the moon may have abundant light, only as she receives it from the sun, it does not follow on that account that the moon herself owes her existence to the sun. It must be recognized that the essence of the moon, her strength, and her function are not one and the same thing. Neither in her essence her strength nor her function taken absolutely does the moon owe her existence to the sun, for her movement is impelled by her own motor, and her influence by her own rays. Besides, she is a certain light of her own, as shown in Eclipse. It is in order to fulfill her function better and more potently, that she borrows from the sun, abundance of light, and works thereby more efficaciously. In like manner, I say, the temporal power receives from the spiritual neither its existence nor its strength, which is its authority, nor even its function taken absolutely. But well for her does she receive therefrom, through the light of grace which the benediction of the chief pontiff sheds upon it in heaven and on earth, strength to fulfil her function more perfectly. So the argument was at fault in form, because the predicate of the conclusion is not a term of the major premise, as is evident. The syllogism runs thus. The moon receives light from the sun, which is the spiritual power. The temporal ruling power is the moon. Therefore the temporal receives authority from the spiritual. They introduce light as the term of the major, but authority as predicate of the conclusion, which two things we have seen to be diverse in subject and significance. End of Book Three, Chapters One through Four